Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. So last week what we learned was that uh, Paul had started in Thessalonia as the, at the top of your screen and was basically chased out of Thessalonia to Berea. He spent some time there. Uh, the Thessalonians caught up to him in Berea and he escaped in the middle of the night and went. The goal was to get to Corinth um, and Athens was essentially a layover and uh, he was waited in Athens uh, for his friends. Uh, Timothy and Silas are mentioned, but probably others as well. Spoiler alert, he doesn't meet up with them in, in Athens. He ends up going on to Corinth and meeting up with them there. Okay. So the final destination was Corinth. Now, in Athens, as, Paul, as was Paul's custom, uh, he started uh, with the Athenian synagogue. That's where he visited first. And uh, he shared uh, the news about Jesus and the resurrection. And we have no indication that it got any traction there. And so Paul risked going into the public marketplace where he encountered uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, two different uh, Greek philosophical groups, and they um, questioned him, debated with him, and they end up introducing him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a council of philosophers that vetted the ideas, uh, new ideas on behalf of the Athenians. Um, so Paul was given the opportunity to influence the influencers. Now, I say all of this to then lead us up to today's scripture, which is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 33. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, and he said to them, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, the, uh, to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all people to inhabit the whole earth, and God allotted the times to their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For now I'm going to pause here uh, to indicate that Paul now is going to make two quotations. One is from a Greek philosopher named Epimenides, and one is from a Greek poet named Aratus. So verse 28, for in him we live and move and have your being, Epimenides. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring, Aratus. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man 
whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word to us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Loving God, um, as we turn our attention to your Holy Scripture, uh, we pray that indeed, uh, by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit at work among us, that your Spirit would lead us into your truth uh, through these Scriptures. So may the words of my mouth, may our thoughts and meditations be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the menu at the Cheesecake Factory? <laughs> Sounds like you have. Uh, in our family, we usually go to the Cheesecake Factory as a, it's a restaurant of celebration. So when my son and daughter graduated from junior high and when, again when they graduated from high school, we, we went to the Cheesecake Factory as a place for celebration. And uh, when, I'm going to the, when I'm anticipating going to the Cheesecake Factory, because I love dessert and I love cheesecake, I, um, you know, I, I basically I fast before I go, which really sounds like, sounds like a spiritual exercise. The truth is I'm starving myself so that I can gorge myself when I get there. And uh, you, know, you, you get to the Cheesecake Factory and you get seated and the server comes and they hand you a book. And, you know, it's got the glossy, you know, laminated pages, and it's got spiral, and it actually is pretty hefty. And then you realize that book is the menu. And then you spend, like, hours, like, going through, like, there are so many options at the Cheesecake Factory. And there's a phrase for this. It's like, it's overwhelming. And there's a phrase for this. It's called oversaturation. Oversaturation. Now, the reason why I'm talking about oversaturation today is to give us an understanding of the t context into which Paul was speaking in Athens. It's believed that the population of Athens at the time of Paul was 10,000 people. And in Paul's time, there's evidence that, were, that, was nearly, that there were nearly 30,000 shrines and idols in the city. That's a three-to-one ratio. For every one person in Athens, there were three either shrines or idols to be worshipped. And this has led to a joke by Peteronius, who was an ancient historian, who said, you're more likely to accidentally bump into a god in Athens than you are an actual person. Okay, 2,000 years later, and gets, it still gets a couple of chuckles. And it's because of this, uh, this sense of spiritual oversaturation, that Paul begins his address with the words, Athenians. I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. And then he goes on to describe how he walked through the city. And as he did, he saw all of these objects of worship. And then he found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. So Paul walked around the city and he saw the shrines devoted to gods. He saw the shrines uh, devoted to idols, and these would have been handmade um, statues and statuettes, um, 
and they were being worshipped. Now, many of these statues have survived, and even today there are copies of them uh, as we see uh, as uh, samples of ancient art. Now, we may interpret them as quaint exhibits of ancient art. However, these were not just objects of art to the Athenians. They were actual gods, gods to be worshipped. So last weekend, I told you about Paul's initial response, that the Greek word describes it as, it's, it, he had a visceral response, and, and the Greek word that describes his response was a storm within. And based on that description of Paul's initial response, we might have expected Paul to rebuke, we may ha might have expected Paul to admonish or condemn the Athenians. And perhaps that's a reflection of our own bias that we read into the text. We expect or even want Paul to give him the old turn or burn altar call sermon. But by the time Paul had gotten to uh, this audience, this audience of Athenian influencers, it seems as if Paul's storm within had been leavened with grace and mercy and kindness. See, in today's scripture, Paul sets an example for us. And if you're following along in your bulletins and the outline, this is point number one. Paul sets an example for us. Paul accepted people where they were at. Verse 22 tells us, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. Isn't that a thoughtful and kind introduction? Paul began right where the Athenians were. He didn't expect them to be where he was at. He did not condemn them. He did not attack their idolatry. In fact, as far as he could, he's paying them a compliment. Then Paul said, as I've been walking around your city, I found an altar to an unknown God. And we've got a picture of this. Um, this was actually a, built uh, in the, the golden age of uh, the, Greek, uh, the, the Greek, wow, kingdom, Greek reign, empire. Thank you. <laughs> the, the Greek empire. And it had fallen apart, and the Romans had found it and actually uh, put it back together. Uh, and, uh, and that's an example of, of an, one of the altars to an unknown god. I will explain. Because believe it or not, there were many of these throughout Athens and, many, and some of these throughout Greece. Because centuries before, there had been a plague. And apparently... The people and the powers that be came up with a solution that involved turning loose flocks of sheep. And wherever a sheep was found laying down, it was sacrificed and either offered to the nearest God shrine, or if there was no God shrine in the vicinity, an altar was erected and it was dedicated to an unknown God with something like this. And Paul had discovered one of these things. And he said, this is the God that I want to talk to you about. The God that you claim as unknown, I want to make known to you. And I think all of this is a great introduction. At this point, let me ask you a question. Was Paul just being gracious and merciful? Or as I um, indicated last week, 
Paul being trained in rhetoric and being trained in debate? Was he just being strategic? Now, I think the answer is, why can't it be both? I'm a big believer that if you look hard enough, every fence has a hole in it. And Paul basically saw a rhetorical hole. He was looking and entering into their culture and looking at all of this spirituality, 10,000 gods or 30,000 gods in the city of Athens. And in all of that, he sees a rhetorical hole. He sees this shrine, this altar, this to an unknown God. And he enters into their culture and he steps through that. And it's through that that he speaks to them. He didn't expect them to just be where he was at. He entered into their culture. Initially, Paul doesn't insist that they be like him, but rather he sheds himself of his own cultural background and enters into their Greco-Roman Athenian reality. Friends, if this sounds familiar, if it feels familiar to you, but you can't quite place it, look no further than the incarnation of God made known to us through Jesus. Every Christmas season, we sing Christmas carols, and those carols throughout have this name or title woven into them, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means, is a title that's, or a name that's attributed to Jesus, and it means God with us. It doesn't mean us with God. It means God with us, that God entered into our reality so that we would better understand God through his son, Jesus. And Paul himself understood, them, understood this very well. So in the book of Acts, we have the history of the early church, and Paul is a major character in that history. And then in the rest of the New Testament, we, most of it is made up of letters that Paul himself actually wrote. And so in his letter to the church in Philippi, it's called Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes, Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, God made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Paul understands theologically this idea of, of incarnation and following Jesus' example, right? He understands it, but he also lives it out. Following Jesus' example, Paul accepted people where they were at. And instead of expecting the polytheistic and what we would call unbelieving Athenians to enter into his reality, Paul entered into their reality. Paul accepted people where they were at. I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. Point two in our outline. Paul spoke their language. Paul spoke their language. How many of you have had the opportunity to travel internationally? Raise your hand if you've traveled internationally. Oh, a lot of us. Great. Now, how many of those countries that you've gone to speak English? Okay. When we go to foreign countries, we expect them to speak a foreign language, right? 
Um, I recently, my wife and I had uh, the opportunity in June to travel internationally. We went to Austria and we went to the Czech Republic and we went to Germany. Ask me why. Because we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Thanks for asking. <laughs> and so this was our gift to one another for our 30th anniversary. And um, we got on the plane, and I just remember kind of collapsing in the seat on the plane. We were both exhausted. She was, uh, she's a teacher in, in education. She was wrapping up her school year. We got onto the plane, absolutely exhausted. And I had some expectations of what this trip would be all about. And I was expecting, you know, good food. I was expecting adventure. One thing I was not expecting was that the countries that we would go to, they would speak our language. You just don't expect that when you're traveling internationally. What's my point? My point is this. Paul's a genius. Paul didn't expect his Athenian audience, in terms of culture, to speak his language. In terms of culture, he entered into their world, and he attempted to speak their language. And we know this because he didn't make the case for Jesus in the resurrection by quoting Hebrew scripture. Hebrew scripture that they most likely would not have been familiar with. Instead, as I pointed out, he spoke their language by quoting Greek philosopher, a Greek philosopher and a Greek poet. I experienced something like this uh, over 25 years ago when I started ministry at this church. Um, every work staff has its own culture, and we uh, would have staff, church staff meetings on Tuesday mornings. And back then, we would, after staff meeting, we would walk to the Taco Bell down in the corner and have lunch together and then walk back. And I think the walking part was just justifying that we were eating junk food, but I've digressed. So many of you know and love um, our former senior pastor, Pastor Jeff. So we're walking down, and I remember distinctly, we're walking back from Taco Bell. And if you know, well, backstory, I've been surfing, I've been since I was like 14 years old. So I am like a surfer at heart. And if you know Pastor Jeff, just looking at him, he does not look like a surfer, <laughs> right? Okay, so we're walking back from Taco Bell. And as we're walking, Pastor Jeff says to me, you know, and I'm a young pastor. I've only been here maybe a year and a half, two years. And uh, he, says, um, he says, you know, doing ministry in the church and, and the Holy Spirit it's a lot like surfing. And at which point I'm going, now I'm like, you know, my face is like, oh, really? But inside I'm going, dude, are you seriously going to tell me about surfing? Like, I should be telling you about surfing. So I'm like, okay, what are you going to tell me? And he starts to say, you know, it's a lot like surfing because I've gone to the beach. And when I'm at the beach, it seems like all these surfers paddle out behind, beyond the waves and they just sit there on their boards looking at the horizon. And I'm going, yeah, that's true. And then when, a, when waves come, when a set of waves comes, it seems as if they position themselves to be in the perfect spot so that they can catch the wave, so that they can ride the power of the wave in. And then after they've ridden the wave, they, they paddle back out again and they go out and sit and watch. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's true. And he says, that's a lot like ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, it seems to me as if a lot of what we do in the church, a lot of what we do in leadership and as pastors is that we're waiting on the spirit to move the water, so to speak. And then we are attempting to be in a position so that when the spirit moves, we're in position to ride the Holy Spirit through 
what it wants us to, where it wants us to go. And I'm sitting there going, dang it, man, he got me, right? He hooked me with my language. And it's a lesson that I haven't forgotten. And I knew the moment he finished talking, we were still walking back to the church. And I'm sitting there going, someday I'm going to use this in a sermon. It's only taken 25 years. Paul did the same thing in today's scripture. He spoke their language. In him, we, ha- we, we live and move and we have our being. Epimenides. He spoke their language. We too are his offspring. Aratus. Paul accepted people where they were at. Paul spoke their language. Point three on the outline. Paul called for the question. Paul called for the question. Verses 29 and 30. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. I want to look through, I keep this screen up because I want to kind of work through some of these, uh, these verses and, and what came to mind as I prepared for this message. And, and the first thing is starting from last week in the middle of chapter 17, Paul's first initial reaction when he gets to Athens, I've said this before, was this storm within. Like he is, repulsed might be too strong of a word, but like he's upset about the idolatry that he's seen in this city. And as I mentioned before, at, at, by the time he meets with the Areopagus to influence the influencers, it seems that his, that storm within has been calmed. It's been tempered. And at this point, it's almost as if he's been looking at, like he's been thinking and praying about this city, this idolatrous city, and and it's as if he's gotten to a point, now I don't know specifically, but, and, but I do see it in the scripture, and I'll tell you why in a second. It's like he's been looking in a mirror and examining his own heart, and then learning the lessons of Athens and what he's seen here and what he's seen in his own heart, and then reflecting that what we see in Athens is actually um, a symptom for all of humanity. Because notice that the language here changes not to, like he could, he could be saying, you Athenians, you know, since we are God's offsprings, you ought not to think that the deity is like, he doesn't say you, he's not pointing a finger, he says we. He includes himself, he includes 2,000 years later, all of us. He uses the word we. And I, I want to be clear though, at the same time, he doesn't dismiss the idolatry. He doesn't sweep it under the mat and say, well, I guess I I really don't have to talk about that. He still addresses it. He still talks about these, you know, made of gold and and silver and stone. He still raises the issue. But he includes all of us and himself as well. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, that just jumped out at me, this idea of idolatry, recognizing if we are, if it's our human nature to be drawn to idols, um, we are in some ways exercising ignorance. In, in Athens, it was an issue of the unknown God that he wants to make known. But for us, perhaps we are you know, living in ignorance when we think we can place our hope and our trust, our spiritual hope, our spiritual trust in things that can't hold it 
or sustain it. Now God commands all people, all people, everywhere to repent. So Paul calls for the question. In contrast to the polytheistic, all-inclusive, live and let live, what's one more oversaturated spirituality of the American culture? Wait, scratch that, rewind. In contrast to the polytheistic, all-inclusive, live and let live, what's one more oversaturated spirituality of the Athenian culture? Paul calls for the question. Are we all familiar with what calling the question means? In parliamentary procedure, calling for the question is used as a motion to end the debate and bring it to a vote. Put another way, after sitting at the Cheesecake Factory for an hour, going through the menu, trying to figure out what you want, eventually the server will return. And when the server returns, time is up. The server returns and asks, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? Let me conclude with these thoughts. Today, I hope Paul's example causes us to pause. I hope Paul's example challenges us. Because by and large, Christians today do not have a good reputation for accepting others. If we believe the media, Christians are closed-minded hardliners who demand others to be just like them or be damned. And I would suggest that that frame of mind, I would suggest that that state of the heart reveals our own spiritual insecurities, our own spiritual fears, and ultimately turns people off, turns people away. A my way or the highway attitude doesn't foster goodwill, nor does it reflect the winsome love of God. Paul's example of accepting his Let me say that again. Paul's example of accepting his Athenian audience where they were and speaking their language ought to challenge us to honestly examine how well we accept others. Paul's example ought to challenge our willingness to first understand and then be understood. Paul's example challenges us to appreciate the cultural background of others and discover how God's spirit is likely already at work there. And then, and only then, do we enter into the divine conversation. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul entered into Athens, and in response to the spiritual oversaturation of the city, as I've mentioned, he experienced a storm within. Is it possible that the Athenians' spiritual inclusiveness, their more gods are better approach, was an ex a, a profound expression of spiritual hunger, a hunger that they had that not been met? Um, possibly like some of you, there's times where I'm outside doing yard work on a hot day, Southern California, like today. And I'm always, uh, I'm doing yard work, and like one thing I, I make sure I do, just keep drinking water, keep drinking water. 
And, uh, and then I get hungry. So I go into the cool of the house, and I'm one of these guys where it's just, you know, a bowl of cereal is going to get me through. So, like, it's easy. No prep, just and milk. And I sit down, and I turn on the TV, and I kind of space out, and I eat my cereal. And I'm eating my cereal, and I've had a bowl of cereal. But I still feel hungry. So, you know, you got to have that milk and cereal ratio absolutely perfect. So I go and pour more cereal in, and I eat it, and I'm sitting there. And logically, I'm going, I've eaten, like, a bowl and a half, two bowls of cereal right now, but I'm still hungry. So I go in and I look in the refrigerator and then I rumble around and then I end up making like toast. Here's some toast, some butter and jam, and I eat that. And I know I've eaten a lot of food at this point, but I'm still hungry. It's, and then there was this moment, and this happened recently, like there was a bag of tortilla chips. So, you know, and I'm not about prep. So I just open the bag and sit in front of the TV and space out for a few more minutes. And I'm eating the chore. And I'm like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And it, although I had stayed hydrated the whole time, what I needed was salt. I was eating this food and nothing was satisfying me. But it was the salt that like gave my body a sense of peace. I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. How about you? Have you found that spiritual peace? Has that spiritual hunger been met? Today in worship, we're celebrating the sacrament of communion. And Jesus himself declared, whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. Jesus himself declared, whoever comes to him will never be hungry. Jesus himself said, he is the bread of life. As we celebrate this sacrament today, may it be an outward expression of this inner truth for each and every one of us. Let's pray.
sign.